Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Where are you going, Kayon? I have to go to the publisher's office. Somebody's been leaking some papers that explain many hidden truths about the war. It's no exaggeration to say that this could change history if the Washington Post has the guts to print them. It could also change the way people view the Post. What do you think our publisher will say? It's time for me to go find out. Mr. Bezos? Go away. Not now. Very busy. I can't believe we're selling these snowboarding goggles for 1847. They look great. I don't snowboard, but maybe I'll buy the goggles and then take it up. Sir, this is more about the post than your other job. I have important government secret papers that we must decide whether to publish. Easy peasy. Alexa, should I publish these papers? What are papers? Aye, aye, aye. Papers, like top secret files. You know, Woodward and Bernstein stuff. Would you like to watch a Berenstain Bears animated cartoon? Never mind. Go back to sleep. Mr. Bezos, we really need to focus on these papers. Here's what we do. We print them on shower curtains. Mildew resistant. Hooks are included. But just basic crappy hooks. $27.99 for the package. They can buy the rustic western brushed style Pentagon Papers hooks with easy glide roller balls, durable and rust proof, won't snag or tear for an additional $9.99. But Mr. Bezos, this is news. They can have it tomorrow if they choose one day shipping for an extra $3.99. This all seems wrong, but maybe journalism has changed since the days of Catherine Graham. Today, the nose discusses the post and Aziz Ansari's notorious date. And now he's so clueless about the dating scene he tried to order his lunch on Grinder. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, it turns out they don't actually. <laughs> Never mind. It was a really big misunderstanding. It was super awkward. Uh, all right. First of all, thanks very much to Kevin McDermott uh, from CT Improv for uh, playing Jeff Bezos. And uh, thanks also to, uh, to Betsy Kaplan and Kyron Wolf and introducing Lori Mack as the voice of Alexa. Uh, all right. So uh, it's time to do the nose. And in studio, we are so fortunate to have with us John Dankosky, mm-hmm. executive editor of the New England News Collaborative and host of The Wheelhouse and next on WNPR. Kate Russian is a teaching artist for the Connecticut Office of the Arts and a Pushcart Prize-nominated poet. And Tracy Wu Fastenberg is Director of Development at the Covenant Preparatory School. So uh, we are in the second segment indeed going to talk about the movie The Post, Steven Spielberg's uh, playing out uh, of The Post, The Washington Post's role uh, in the publication of the Pentagon Papers peas in today's show. Uh, and But we're going to begin with something that has more A's in it, and that would be Aziz Ansari, uh, his uh, date with a woman known only to us as Grace, uh, became the stuff of online journalism. I use the word perhaps stretching its meaning a little bit uh, in a publication called Babe Not, Babe.net. A, um, a national debate has ensued. This is uh, what was a very, very, very detailed story uh, about essentially every alleged uh, sexual move, uh, a kind of sexual chess game uh, that went on uh, in the wee small hours of said date, uh, resulting, according to Grace, in her feeling as though uh, a number of stop signs she put up were kind of ignored or uh, run through. Um, it's a complicated story. It has occasioned unusually passionate responses from uh, the American public. I think people are kind of divided about this, but everybody seems to have an opinion. So let's try to have some opinions here. Um, so um, I, I'll say one more thing to set the table, which is, I mean, the, the opinions 
they kind of all they're all over the place. But I mean, if they sort of can be divided up dichotomously, they would be divided between uh, people who feel as though this really is kind of a story of a male asserting his privilege, substituting uh, insistence for mutual consent. Uh, and and sort of not giving up until he kind of got what he wanted uh, to a story about simply a d- date that was mutually unsatisfactory, that was, yes, characterized by insistence by the man, but also just very much a reflection of the way uh, hookup culture seems to go these days and, and that the, the really detailed explanation uh, of every allegation about uh, what Ansari did uh, t- is tantamount to just a character smear that he will find it difficult to recall cover from. I think those are sort of the way the two camps sort themselves out. But Kate, maybe I maybe I did even that part wrong. Who, who can say? Um, how did this sit with you? Well, I didn't know much about him except for, you know, liking him on parks and recreation and being happy for him and his co-writer. That Where we should say he played the kind of character who might, in fact, you know, he played this kind of narcissistic character who fancied himself a ladies' man in a way that he probably wasn't. There's a way in which that character is alive in the reality of the story. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I was I was ready to you know, hear his side and give him the benefit of the doubt until I went online and uh, checked out his stand-up routine and learned that a lot of it is about uh, – how uh, alcohol and low expectations leads to uh, bad sex and bad relationships. And so I, I, after I read the um, woman's account on Babe.com, I think I'd have to conclude uh, that uh, his celebrity and, and power was at work and uh, led to him having a quote-unquote good time when the woman clearly did not. Um, yeah, so let's let's, say, let's explore this, the contours of this a little bit more. I don't. Can we agree? Maybe we can't agree. I I feel like as though John, um, as you know, just from my fulminating in our emails, that whatever else we decide about Aziz and sorry, I feel like this is like just barely journalism. That the the the, the this this is you could write this story and, and I think make it clear what the allegations are without telling it. Now, I, we should say Babe.net is inexplicably run by a man, a man with a background in Fleet, Fleet Street's infamous style of British tabloid journalism. I think it's very much in that tradition. Uh, the young woman who wrote it uh, has written a number of other journalistic efforts including – let me see if I can just quickly come to it. Yes. Um, here Here's what your go-to drunk food says about what kind of hoe you are. There would be a previous byline by Katie Way, the person who wrote this particular story. Um, so I just like – I don't know. I mean I don't know whether I feel bad for Aziz Ansari or not. But I feel like this is just such a low piece of journalism. OK. So and I have told myself here that the only thing I, I really feel that I can or want to comment on in any of this mm-hmm. is the quality of the journalism or not mm-hmm. because I, I feel so – unbelievably uncomfortable talking about whether or not this sexual encounter says anything about men and women in society in in a part of society that I seem I know nothing about whatsoever like I don't see any of myself or anybody that I know in any of this I also know that this is coming at a time in which we're having a whole different conversation about seemingly very very different things in Hollywood and elsewhere that this is being conflated with um and so to that to that end 
the journalism that you put on this needs to be a little clear. Which story is it trying to tell? Is it trying to tell a story of, as you say, perhaps fame and celebrity, male power, or is it about dating culture? Is it about a very bad experience with a famous guy? I'm going to read one little short passage that gets that's at the very front of the piece. It's the setup. And it goes like this, and this helps to set the stage for what I believe is something I can't really read seriously afterward. Before meeting Ansari, Grace told friends and coworkers about the date and consulted her go-to group chat about what she should wear to fit the cocktail chic dress code he gave her. She settled on a tank top dress and jeans. She showed me a picture. It was a good outfit. After arriving at his apartment in Manhattan on Monday evening, they exchanged small talk and drank wine. It was white, she said. I didn't get to choose, and I prefer red but it was white wine. If that's the setup, Tracy, it's sort of hard to believe that anything that comes afterward is going to, in the journalistic sense, paint this as as a full story of anything other than this woman kind of complaining to a friend, but only now it's published to the rest of the world. And I'll, I'll fully admit, I don't like the way that the piece was written. It was written like a Cosmo teen girl type of thing. And I think that sort of undercuts what the story really is. And maybe the writer was going for that, hey, I'm going to tell this girl story here and maybe take some guy down. I don't think she, I mean, she's she's relatively young. She's writing titles like Colin Red. So she probably didn't actually go into it with a purpose or a, a moralistic purpose other than, hey, I bet you I can get a lot of clicks on this. I bet you it's going to get my name out probably, there. Yeah. Nobody knew who her name was. I've never heard of Babe.net before this ever in my life. And so it undercuts the seriousness of the conversation. But I don't think that we can let it dilute the serious, seriousness of the conversation because the one thing that I've heard in a lot of different forums, mainly from females – in their 20s, 30s, 40s, you know, folks who are not that far removed from the dating scene or are in it still, that this is not uncommon. This type of situation happens all the time. They've walked away feeling that way. I've walked away from dates feeling that way. And so even though the piece was not the best piece (laughs) of writing ever, um, I think that we still need to take the crux of it, even though those words make me cringe so much. I don't really care what she was wearing. I don't really care, you know, that she consulted her girlfriends about it. Great. She was excited for a date. Wonderful. Let's get to the meat of it. And he didn't let her pick the wine. And I think that I that just, was like a really sort of shallow way to set it up as like she didn't she didn't get story. to choose anything. <laughs> so, yeah. But, you know, what ensues is a description of people doing, in some occasions, things that consensual couples do. Um, you know, it, 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 the description, I mean, I, I, I don't, I'm not part of the young dating hookup culture either, obviously. <laughs> so I don't know too much about the way things go. Although Tracy, in some ways, I feel like in all of this, in the, the piece itself and then in the conversation that's ensued, I feel like there's a generational step backwards. And I, it could be that I just didn't understand anything that was happening around me uh, for most of my life, which turns out to be true <laughs> most of the time anyway. So, but I feel like I grew up with a generation of women who did not do the things that are described in that piece 
in, in, in a way, in a circumstance where they didn't want to do them uh, and who didn't, if a guy was being a jerk, just say, I'm, I'm out of here. You know, I mean, I feel like I grew up with a group of the, the notion that no means no, the notion that a woman has control of her body, the, the notion that a woman sh should never, you know, allow a man to do things to her that she doesn't want done to her. I've been brought up with that all my life. And I was, grew up with a, I don't know, I feel like I'm reading about a sort of post-feminist or third wave feminist group of, uh, of women who are part of a hookup culture who for some reason or other haven't been taught this vital truth. And I don't mean to put it all on the woman. It's obviously not her fault. If it I don't know whether this story is true or not. I think there's at best a 50 percent chance it's a perfectly accurate account of that, of that evening. But um, I think it's a, it's a combination of multiple things. I think you've got a generation of women who feel more empowered to go out and explore their sexuality. But on the other side, you've got this conflicting message of you don't want to be a tease. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you say no. It's, oh, you're no fun. Lighten up. You know, don't take yourself so seriously. The men are being told, you know, you have to be a strong man. You should pursue her. You should be persistent. You should be whatever. And one of the biggest things that, that a girlfriend of mine noted, and this is where we can thank Babe.net for the very detailed account, is that every time she said no or expressed reluctance, he took it a step back, made her feel just safe enough that she didn't get up, walk out, and go. And then, as you know, like putting clothes back on, you know, that would make me feel safe. Okay, maybe this is going back in the direction I want it to. But as soon as they're back on, trying to take them off again. So I feel like in this particular story, it's not cut and dry of he's trying to do something. I'm saying no. He's keeping going. I'm out of here. You know, he did. He was a little more. Artistic right. there's than some, that? Yeah, there's some push and pull. And yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And then at the end, she sort of – things have happened that she wished hadn't happened. Yeah, Kate, what were you going to so, say? So, um, you know, I have to ask uh, how uh, online porn, in addition to the hookup culture, affects how men and women see themselves and each other. Mm -hmm. And I hear what you're saying, Colin, that, you know, you were raised, well, a woman would just get up and go. But we live in a culture where, where women and young women, women of all ages, can be pressured into sending nude photos of themselves. And so how is that possible? But it is. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that disturbs me about this story is that uh, the woman involved did not feel empowered. She still felt like she had to please him, that she could change him, that I, I sense that maybe she was embarrassed at some points. She said she was in shock, couldn't believe it was happening. And that's really, for me, one of the most disturbing parts of the story, that despite everything and all the advances for women, that individual young women still feel disempowered in these situations and feel like they need to please. I, an important word you used before, Tracy, though, is, is this is not uncommon. And I think because it's not uncommon, that's why it's important for us to have a conversation in America. Right? Right. If this is the way it goes and it shouldn't go like this, let's have the conversation. The, the reason for my strong critique of the way the story is told is you want that story to be as credible as possible in its telling so that people across generations uh, of all races, cultures, genders get this story the same way. Like I really mm -hmm. want people to understand the story. So here's what I'll say as I, as I read this is Aziz Ansari, read this, take this to heart. Any guy who acts like this, read this, take this to heart. 
if this is what you're doing and this is what you look like, you need to stop and you need to figure out how to not do that anymore, okay? The problem is in its placement in this wider culture is like that's the message and that's a big message for the not uncommon thing that happens between men and women all the time. I just sort of hate the timing that it's conflated with these other things that are more uncommon. Mm -hmm. The Harvey Weinstein story is an uncommon story in some ways in, in terms of the power that this one man had. There's a lot of Harvey Weinsteins out there, but that's not what the story is. And so that's my, my worry about this is we're conflating something that's a good learning moment for all sorts of people and another story that's about predators right. and rapists and horrible people. But I also just <laughs> – I don't want to ignore the whole question. I realize that this is a good conversation to have and, and if, it, if it is, as you say, and I believe that it is, you know, not that uncommon, not that unfamiliar a narrative, then we should have that conversation about it and we should tell uh, our young men, you know, that, that – that they should listen to and and read read body language, listen to what is said, uh, understand what's happening, and not consider this just this you know, never ending chase in which you kind of wear down your prey like a wolf <laughs> runs down a doe until it's too exhausted to get up. That that's not a, any way to act. And we should also teach our young women. You know, if you're in a situation like that and you're not happy with it, you're not comfortable with it. Get the hell out of there. You don't have to do that. You don't have to put up with it. It's sort of a two pronged thing. But I also I want to have that conversation. I'm glad we're having that conversation. I just don't know whether the story is true or not. And I just – I don't want to lose track of that, that uh, an anonymously sourced story to, to me about somebody's description of a date. I, I think if you got two people together and asked them to describe any 10-hour stretch of time that they spent together when they were like having an argument about buying a couch – you know, they would tell different but, stories. But, but isn't that the nature of so many of the accusa accusations that we have coming from so many people about so many powerful men? I mean, I, look, we're not going to be able to run down the truth of what happened in so many backs of cars and backlot casting rooms and every other place. Mm. Um, we're going to have to take people at their word. And so the question is, uh, can we take this woman, having told this story in this way, at her word in the way that we might someone who's accusing uh, – uh, Senate candidate or the president of the United States or the uh, powerful head of a movie studio. But of course, we could, I mean, I, I, we didn't in the past, right? I mean, who's in more trouble right now, Aziz Ansari or Bill Clinton? We know the names of four Bill Clinton accusers. Some of their accusations are far, far worse and more searing than anything that Aziz Ansari is accused of. We know the names of these women. We don't know Grace's names, you know. And what we've done in the past is go, well, it's just kind of inconvenient for us to believe these women. So we're just going to push on. Yeah, what the, we're say. the one thing as far as I know, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, he has not come out and discredited or, or disagreed with the details of what she said. He has said that he read the situation completely differently, walked away from there thinking that it was consensual, that they had a good time, and that he felt very bad about it and was reflecting on it and was processing that after her text messages. But he hasn't said, no, that didn't happen. Yeah, yeah there was actually a screenshot, supposedly, mm -hmm. of his text messages the next day saying, like, oh, that was fun, paraphrase. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, and her and saying, it might have been fun for you, but it wasn't for th me. Th they were also and then him uh, saying, I'm sorry. Right. right. Yeah. right. But, Which is exactly what he yeah, should have said. Yeah. But he hasn't disagreed with her account, I, has he? I, I, no, I, as far as I know, he has. And one thing I think there's another detail is uh, I believe that they exchanged flirtatious text messages throughout the days leading up to that date. I 
don't think we've seen those. No. Now, I don't know what is in those, and I don't know how far we're supposed to go down the paper trail, <laughs> right, of this. And that's why this sort of feels so icky to me, because we're really, it's a famous guy and a woman who is, who is not famous. But the fact of the matter is, is this happens all the time. We wouldn't be having this conversation if it was just two other people, and we wouldn't be running down all this all this paper trail. And that's that's where we have this conflation of, of uh, fact fiction, uh, celebrity, non-celebrity, in a way that I, makes this story just feel, I don't know. I, uh, and that's why I, I, I like the conversation <laughs> that we're having yeah. now better than, I mean, I, was, I said to you guys, I got in my car the other night and one of the all things considered anchors was having a conversation with Caitlin Flanagan, who's written kind of on one side of this, and some other journalist, I didn't catch her name, was writing on the other. And they were just like discussing this date. <laughs> I'm thinking, is this what All Things Considered is for, is to like go through all the little details of an Aziz Ansari date? No, I think All Things Considered could be a good place to have a conversation about how men and women learn from, from a story like this so that you know people, people, people's expectations – you know, are more sensible and people's behavior is better. Um, but I just I, like, I, you know, I, and in terms of like, and sorry, refuting this, I, I don't know how he would do it. It's so detailed. Like he would, he, he would really have to say, really, well, when I do that thing with my fingers, you know, I actually, here's what I think is happening. I mean, like a refutation of this article would be pornographic, you know, just because like so much of the article is kind of pornographic. Yeah, Kate. So, um, you know, I guess I have to step back and think that all of us, each one of us, whatever our age, whatever our station, we always have to ask the question, how would we feel if we were treated this way? Mm -hmm. I think it has a lot to do with empathy. Mm -hmm. How would I feel if someone did X, Y, Z to me? If, how would I react? Uh, so to me, it comes down to empathy, and I think we could all use a a big dose of that. Well, there's that Rawlsian thought experiment. Say, design the society you want to live in without knowing which place you're going to occupy in it. You know, that's how you design the best society, right? So you don't know in advance whether you will be the woman in this situation or the man in this situation. And you want a society – I mean, because when I think about empathy too, I think about – some young man who, as I said in the emails, is or an old man, you know, who is our father or our husband or our son, our son, who gets accused this way and says, "Mom, I just that's not what happened. That is that is she, the way that she's describing it. You know, it's really not what happened." Um, and I think it's you know, to me, that's a troubling part of the student. It's not the only troubling. It part. It, yeah. it is, but I think that um, one of the points that I, I hope hope that we're making out of this is. That the view that many men in society have, young or old, is, mom, I didn't do that. That's not what it was like. True. And the fact of the matter is, is that it actually probably is pretty close to what it was like. You just are looking at it through the, through the lens mm -hmm. of being a man who expects certain things are going to go your way. And if you do certain things, there will be certain results. And that's – I mean, that's part of the problem. It's part of the reason why it's important to have this particular conversation and push it out. And, you know, maybe Aziz Ansari, he actually is sorry about it. And maybe he's collateral damage in, in a really big conversation that we have to have. Or maybe he's just a bad dude who women should stay away from. I, I mean, I don't know. It might be a little bit of both of those categories. There. It, it very well might be. Well, there's always also the assumption by some that if a woman goes to a man's apartment right. – 
then Mm -hmm. sex is going to occur. Mm -hmm. And I think there needs to be that conversation of a woman or a man can engage in X, Y, Z and then say, but I don't want to do ABC or yeah, X, Y, Z happened last time. X, Y, Z is not happening this time. And I think that's where our mindset needs to change for both women and men. Men can't expect it because these are traditional gender roles. I know not every time, not everyone, you know, and women shouldn't feel obligated. Each situation is going to be different. Each step of the way is going to be different. Mm -hmm. And so there's no entitlement. That's very well put. And it's a good place for us to end. And we have to end anyway. So we have time for the post. We'll do that after the break. He tells a dirty joke and I call him sleazy He thanks me like it's some kind of praise There's something annoying in his confident manner And yet I can't escape from his gaze All right, uh, we're going to talk now about The Post. The Post, of course, is Steven Spielberg's uh, Valentine to The Washington Post and to Catherine Graham in particular as The Washington Post uh, jumps in and tries to uh, help uh, publish the Pentagon Papers. Uh, by the time they do this, The New York Times has already published some of the uh, Pentagon Papers and is now under a journalist, uh, excuse me, a judicial quashing uh, order. Uh, so we hear uh, now Tom Hanks as Ben Bradley and Meryl Streep uh, as Kay Graham uh, talking about this very question. So, can I ask you a hypothetical question? Oh, dear, I don't like hypothetical questions. Well, I don't think you're going to like the real one either. Do you have the papers? Not yet. Oh, gosh, oh, gosh, because you know the the, uh, position that would put me in... You know, we have language in the prospectus. Yeah, I know, I know that the bankers can change their mind. And I know what is at stake. You know, the only couple I knew that both Kennedy and LBJ wanted to socialize with was you and your husband, and you owned the damn paper. Since the way things worked, politicians and the press, they trusted each other so they could go to the same dinner party and drink cocktails and tell jokes while there was a war ben, raging in Vietnam. I don't know what we're talking about. I, I'm not protecting Lyndon. Oh, no, you got his former Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, the man who commissioned this study. He's I'm one of about a dozen party him. guests I'm not out on your protecting any of patio. them. I'm protecting the paper. All right. Um, I'm going to just go around the table here and get your reactions. I do want to, just so I don't forget to say it, say that um, I, at least on one occasion that I can recall, met Ben Bradley. And of the three people, uh, Ben Bradley, Jason Robards, and Tom Hanks, uh, Jason Robards is the most act, uh, accurate portrayal of Ben Bradley. <laughs> Much better at it than Ben Bradley was. Uh, so, like the best you can do if you're Tom Hanks is come in third, I think, at this point. But um, all right. So this, I just wanted to start over here with you, Tracy Wu Fastenberg. Um, what was this movie for you? Well, uh, as I admitted to all of you, number one, I'm the only one of you three who is not does not have a background in journalism, um, and I was not alive when this happened. So it is part of you know this sort of history that adults or grown ups to me, I'm still not grown up, um, know lived through and everything. And for me, it's sort of like this weird sort of history that I did not live through, did not experience. 
So it was very much historical fiction to me to, in certain ways because some of it just seemed unbelievable. I think it was dramatized. I think it was sort of Spielbergized in certain ways. But I, I enjoyed it. Um, I happened to go to matinee where there were a bunch of older folks who were there who also seemed to thoroughly enjoy it with lots of full voice, do you remembers? <laughs> and um, and I, I liked Meryl Streep's portrayal. That's something we old people do a lot. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> full voice in a full back movie Dickie theater. He used to live next door to me. <laughs> um, I, I liked Meryl Streep's portrayal. I sort of like seeing her play vulnerable and growing into sort of, you know, a, a, the strong woman that we know her to be a, as a real person. Um, some of it I just found a little hokey, uh, a little corny in certain bits, but I did enjoy experiencing this sort of piece of American history um, especially when you sort of juxtapose it against today. Kate? I enjoyed the movie, and I must say I was not looking forward to seeing um, Tom Hanks portray Ben Bradley, especially after I saw a clip of uh, the Ben Bradley interview from uh, 60 Minutes, and I just thought, I, I don't want to be seeing Tom Hanks playing Tom Hanks, but uh, he won me over, and I I thought that Meryl Streep was really good, and I really liked what I saw as the 70s film look of the way the movie was shot. I really got a kick out of that, and I was in college during this time, and I would say that even having lo- lived through it, that a lot of my images and knowledge about the situation are actually coming from all the president's men Mm -hmm. and Robert Redford and uh, Dustin Hoffman as Woodward and Bernstein. So I was really surprised and excited to learn about Catherine Graham's key role in going forward with the decision to print the the papers, the Pentagon Papers in the Post. Mm. I, I guess I'll, I'll start there and say that Meryl Streep, of course, is Meryl Streep, and she's she's wonderful to watch in anything. Uh, not as convinced uh, by Tom Hanks as as perhaps some, and I couldn't get around the fact that I I was really watching Tom Hanks and and Meryl Streep all the time, and not really the characters they were playing, but. Part of my problem with it as a journalist is I wanted a great journalism film, and it wasn't really a journalism film. Uh, the two movies that stack up in my mind are All the President's Men, uh, which is from of that era, uh, and and also Spotlight from a few years ago, which tells the story of the Boston Globe in the 1990s and uh, a Catholic church sex scandal. What those two stories had in common that this didn't have was it had a central villain uh, in All the President's Men, of course, it's the Nixon White House. And there's an attempt to tell a story that Nixon didn't want to have told. In Spotlight, there's the power of the Catholic Church, and there's telling a story that needs to be told, despite the fact that it's probably going to hurt some people in your own family, in your own neighborhood. Here, there's no central villain because it's about a truth that people have been telling lies to the American public for more than a decade, Republicans and Democrats that they've sent many, 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 many people to war to die, and they've covered it up, but there's not a central uh, figure. 
that's the bad guy, Colin. And I think the other problem is, is that it's not really a reporting movie or a journalism movie. It's a publishing movie. It's about whether or not we're, we're going to publish something that we have as opposed to the hard work of going and digging and getting those stories that Woodward and Bernstein and all the spotlight team got. Well, I think one reason it's not a reporting story, there's a great reporting character on this in this story. His name is Neil Sheehan. Uh, he's the guy that initially Daniel Ellsberg goes to. Uh, he actually, Ellsberg actually shows up at his house. They stay up all night. They talk. Ellsberg says, you know, I'd give you, I'm not going to give you the papers because I don't trust that you'll publish them. You have to promise to me that you'll publish them. At one point, um, uh, uh, Neil Sheehan and his wife, they know that uh, Ellsberg is out of town. They fly up to Boston and they go in Ellsberg's apartment and they take the papers and they take them to coffee shops around Boston and they photocopy all the papers. Then they put them back so Daniel Ellsberg won't even know that they've done this. You know, And then they go ahead with this incredible effort to publish these papers. And, and Sheehan plays this incredible cat and mouse game uh, with Ellsberg, ultimately doing the thing that Ellsberg profoundly hopes that he will do. Now, the problem with this, of course, is Neil Sheehan is a reporter for The New York Times. <laughs> Not the Washington Post. That sounds like a great movie, Colin. It's a really good movie. At one point, when Ellsberg realizes somehow or other that this is going to go forward and, and, and that the Times is going to publish this and that the Justice Department is going to get really upset and maybe come after his set of the papers, he moves them to, get ready, Howard Zinn's apartment. Uh, Howard Zinn, People's History of the American, uh, uh, People's History of the United States, uh, heavily featured in Lady Bird uh, and in Goodwill hunting. So, um, yeah, it's a really good story. It's just not about the Washington Post. But the thing that you don't get if you do the, do the New York Times version is the Catherine Graham. I think the Catherine Graham story here is the really – it's the beating heart of this movie. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I, Tracy, I may be alone in this. I had a little bit of a problem with Streep's transition I mean, she starts Graham off as this kind of can't put two words together, knocks chairs over, caftan wearing, you know, apparent simpleton who I realize is being trampled over by men at meetings. She's always the only woman at meetings. They don't listen to what she has to say. I get all that. But having sort of watched the later Catherine Graham, I can't believe she was that unimpressive (laughs) before she transformed. Yeah, it may have been a little too black and white there. But I think that if you watch more of her facial expressions and those moments where she's not speaking, it's where you can sort of see the the strength underlying her. You know, a little bit of a – not an eye roll, but sort of, you know – the way her eyes go or her facial expression or they're talking about her in the other room and you can see her her frustration with them, with herself sort of percolating right there. I think that's where you saw more of the strength in the beginning. It wasn't in in like her large gestures or her speech or anything like that because you do. You see her fumbling. You see her forgetting. You see her sort of getting scared. Um, but maybe it was too much of a flip and, and not enough of a subtle transition. And Kate, I think All the President's Men is like explicitly a guy's movie too. Definitely. It's really about yeah. guys. So we don't ever see Catherine Graham. We see that famous exchange where John John Mitchell calls up uh, and or they call up John Mitchell and then he threatens them and he says, Katie Graham is going to get her tit caught in a ringer if you keep doing this. And then you see Jason Robards, the real Ben Bradley coming in and he approves the story and then he looks at him and goes, did he really say that thing about Mrs. Graham? Uh, <laughs> It's kind of stricken way. But but she's not there. She's not on screen. So maybe that's an argument for this. Yeah. You know, if you look at um, the post um, in the context or in the frame of um, uh, Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, mm-hmm. 
Catherine Graham is the only person in the story who actually changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I checked out her um, biography, her autobiography, um, Personal History, and it actually talked about her having stage fright. Mm-hmm. And she was at, actually had an issue right. with public speaking. Uh, so I think that's where Spielberg got that part of the story and, and maybe Streep too. Um, one thing I thought was missing from the story was her her mentor. And her mentor, in terms of the women's movement and feminism and the changes that were happening at the time, was Gloria Steinem. And so my question is, why was Gloria Steinem totally absent from the post? It seems like we could have at least had a, a, a phone conversation uh, to know that they had a relationship and that she was very affected by uh, her relationship with Gloria Steinem and the changes going on uh, in terms of women at that period of time. Although at that point, you have to ask what kind of movie you've got. I mean, this is like already three or four movies, right? It's the, the movie about the transformation of a woman. It's also about the press standing up to an oppressive president. That's a movie Spielberg wants to make. He put the other movie he was working on on hold so he could make this movie right at this particular moment. And, and it's a bunch of other things, too. It, it, it's about the press standing up to an oppressive president. But as I said before, I, I don't know that necessarily it 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 hammers it home in the way that many of the the older people in the audience, when I went to a matinee, uh, were, were, were exclaiming, um, I was, by the way, Tracy, I was the youngest person also in the theater, a matinee. It was the first time I'd ever seen a movie by myself, which is an entirely different subject. But it was, it was, it was very interesting. Um, but, but look, it's not about the modern day Donald Trump versus the press. That's, that's all the president's men. That's spotlight. That's about someone who wants to not have a story told about him because it would negatively influence his life and the lives of those around him and wants to stop it. In some ways, Nixon plays that role in the post, but he's playing it on behalf of a whole series of other people. And the central character here is Robert McNamara, who shows up at all these cocktail parties. He's And Bruce Greenwood, by the way, was made to play. Oh, my goodness. You, <laughs> you couldn't have had a better Robert McNamara. I wouldn't have thought of him if you'd asked me to suggest somebody. But, but, but part of what... You, Part of what I think is lacking is what Catherine Graham seemingly had to lose in this was her social standing and some of her friends. Uh, and her uh, IPO. Uh, but, yeah, and her, and her IPO, but maybe that was overblown a little bit as well. But her power rested in right. her social life in Georgetown. Was. That's who she was. That's where her power came from. That's, that's the power that she had. So I, I'd argue that the fact that she went against her friend, yes. Robert McNamara, and she went against the chair of her board and all the other people, the people she socialized with, I think in some way is much more difficult than going against a person that you hate or you well, see as an there, enemy. To be fair here, though, Sulzberger and those guys, they thought they were going to jail. They thought there was a very substantial – their outside law firm deserted them, ditched them at the last minute and said and threatened – this is their counsel <laughs> – threatened to report them to the Justice Department for committing crimes. And I think by the time that the Times had run through this process, it was clear you probably don't go to jail for this because Sulzberger and those people, they would be in jail by then. So yeah, I mean, yes, you're right that she's what she would stand to lose was a social position that was a very – kind of important form of human capital to her. And she had to go against all of her training. 
Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, she was facing convention. She was facing social censure. But, but it's, it's why, though, it doesn't to me, I think you're right about all of this, Kate, but I, I think it then doesn't land as the grand gesture that Spielberg wanted to make about the press going up against an oppressive president or an oppressive regime. I mean, the, the, the parallel I was drawing more in my mind is Robert McNamara is like Harvey Weinstein. He's a very powerful guy who's very popular parties. He's a good friend of Meryl Streep's. Everyone knows something's going on, but nobody don't wants to talk about it. Now there's some papers. Do we publish them and tell everyone, hey, this guy actually sent millions of people to war to be killed? Okay, and, and that's, really, that's really much more, to me, the current event that it is, that it is like not the Trump White House versus the press. All right. We have to stop there. I think we're going to go to make some recommendations and some endorsements. I'll do a spoiler. Our first endorsement is all four of us are going to say, don't eat Tide Pods. All right. Tide Pods (laughs) will make you very sick. Don't ever eat them. They look delicious, but they're not. And they'll make you sick. Tide pond, cause it's not food, it's for your washer. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Voiceover help in the intro by Betsy Kaplan, Lori Mack, and Kevin McDermott. Amanda Fish does not eat Tide Pots. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tom Hanks. On Monday, the scramble jumps back into the latest news. And now, back to Colin. And there's so much latest news these days. All right, we're going to make some recommendations here. Uh, We'll start over here with Tracy Wu Fastenberg. All right, there are two completely unrelated recommendations. The first one is the Instant Pot. If you have not hopped on the pressure cooker bandwagon Is it really that good? It really is. I use mine probably about four or five times a week. So, And it's faster for a lot of things. I make things that I never thought I'd be able to make. Like, what's the thing you make? Yeah. Uh, I'll make kanji, which is something that takes a really long time. Right. It's like a rice por- an Asian yeah. rice porridge. Mm-hmm. Um, split pea soup took like no time at all. Yeah. Uh, steaming eggs, all kinds of different things. Mm. So, but do not put Tide pods. Don't put Tide pods in it unless in, you know it really starts to steam. Tide pod casserole. Yeah, or something. don't steam your Tide pod in there. In, no Tide pods so. in the Instapot. <laughs> <laughs> and the other recommendation has to do with our first segment. Um, I hear a lot of people saying we have to teach our kids better. We have to teach our girls and boys better and raise them better. And I say yes, absolutely. You have to teach both our boys and our girls to be different. But we also have to change our own attitudes. You have to teach our adult children, our teenage children. And ourselves, which is probably the hardest hardest part of it, because most of us feel like we're fully formed, but we can still change. So mm. don't just good put words. it on the next generation. Very good words. Uh, Kate Russian, what have you got for us? All right. My two recommendations uh, are connected to the Hartford Public Library main branch. There is a, a show of sculpture, collage, and fiber art called The Door of No Return by Robert Charles Hudson. It's a very powerful show connected to uh, the the last doorway that Africans uh, being shipped from the western um, coast of uh, Africa saw before the their middle passage voyage to the New World. And that opening, um, that show continues through February 25th. And on a related note, 
There is an Art Walk book club at the Hartford Public Library, and the novel is Home Going, a novel by Yah Gyasi, G-Y-A-S-I, which uh, is about uh, two sisters. It's set in uh, Slave Castle, Cape Coast Castle, in the 18th century, and one sister lives above and is married to uh, the governor, and a half-sister is below in the dungeons. Mm. That's Homegoing by Yah Gyasi, G-Y-A-S-I. Right. Amazing book from last year. All right. So, um, John Dankowski, what have you got? Uh, I've got two things, one very much connected to this place. Uh, in case you haven't gotten a chance to get online and take a look at a website called theislandnextdoor.wnpr.org, uh, this is a place that we have compiled a series of stories that were reported both on the island of Puerto Rico and also here in Connecticut about the experience of Puerto Ricans here in Connecticut and on the island after Hurricane Maria. Uh, it includes some remarkable photography and videography by Ryan Karen King and reportage by a news director, um, Jeff Cohen. And it's very uh, rich and it's very thoughtful. And I just encourage you to take a look at it in case you ever wonder about uh, uh, places that tell stories, giving up on a story after it gets a little bit too old. Uh, WNPR isn't doing that, and I really uh, want you to check it out. The other thing is is uh, a singer-songwriter named Carrie Powers, who I, I had on Where We Live a number of times, uh, has a new record co- uh, called Star Seeds coming out. And I've heard some of the music, and it's fantastic. And uh, she recorded it with um, the folks at Dirt Floor Studios, uh, which is the place where you make incredible acoustic albums in Connecticut and maybe in America right now. She's got a few shows coming up where you can hear some of her new songs at Infinity Hall on January 26th, uh, the Vanilla Bean in Pomfret uh, on February 10th, and the Iron Horse up in Northampton on February 18th. Carrie, it's K-E-R-R-I, Powers. She's an amazing singer-songwriter and a treasure in Connecticut, so check her out. All right. So uh, one of my suggestions is going to be, particularly if you have a young adult, uh, a YA in your house, but even just for you, this I, I'm, I'm mentioning it because it's a YA book. But really, if you just wanted to kind of catch up on all of the parts of this story that is told in the post, uh, the parts that aren't there, basically. I mean, one of the other things that's not in the post that much is Daniel Ellsberg, although he's admirably pl- played by Matthew Reese. Uh, he's very much just kind of a plot device as opposed to a character. Uh, anyway, there's a t- very well done young adult book by Steve Scheinkin, S-H-E-I-N-K-I-N, called Most Dangerous, Daniel Ellsberg and the Secret History of the Vietnam War. I think it would not uh, be insulting to your intelligence for you an adult to read it either, but it'll be, it's, it, either way, it's great. And since it's YA, it's, although it's, I think it's 370 pages, it's, uh, it reads fast. Uh, and it really get, it'll tell you some of the sto- parts of the story that Spielberg cannot possibly um, tell you. Um, so once again, Most Dangerous, Daniel Ellsberg and the Secret History of the Vietnam War. Or, but it's just in general, if you're going to go see The Post, read some other stuff because you know, it just necessarily is going to be very specific. And then I don't know if anybody else has seen this, but you know, Kate, you were saying about how The Post gets kind of the 70s feel uh, really well. Um, I just saw Battle of the Sexes, which is set I think two years after the release of the Pentagon Papers. Uh, have you seen it? You didn't like it? I haven't seen it. Oh, OK. I haven't seen it. Um, you know, it's not the greatest movie in the world. This is, of course, Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs, uh, played by Emma Stone and Steve Carell. I've wanted Carell. to. just haven't seen it. They're yeah. both really great. Carell is like uncannily Bobby Riggs looking. Uh, and and they're both really terrific. And, and it's a fun movie. It's not... 
you know, any great masterpiece. But it, once again, you get that look of the 70s and you get a time where it was even plausible for a group of athletes to be sponsored by Virginia Slims. Uh, and Sarah Silverman, by the way, plays uh, sort of the manager of all these of the Virginia Slims tennis tour uh, based once again on a real character. She's terrific. Uh, and it, just in general, it's a fun movie. I mean, it's like, you know, you stay at home and you you get it on demand or something like that. <laughs> All right. So um, a very distinctive voice uh, passed away this week. That would be the Cranberry singer Dolores O'Riordan. Even if you didn't know her name, you'd recognize her voice. She didn't sound like anybody else and nobody else uh, ever sounded like her. She died suddenly on Monday. She was 46. Uh, and we thought that we would end just with her uh, very, very distinctive voice ringing in your ears. Do we have enough? Can we start playing it now? Will that, will that work? All right. And so I want to thank John Dankosky. You, know, you absolutely have to uh, hear next uh, one of the shows that he hosts. Uh, and then he and I together uh, do The Wheelhouse. Uh, and Kate Russian, uh, read her poetry. And Tracy Wu Fastenberg, uh, find out more about Covenant Preparatory School, where she is director of development. All right. Here is Dolores O'Reardon. We wanted, wanted you to be able to hear a nice long chunk uh, that unusual voice. Good way.